The reason that I think I gravitated to that music was because they were saying something that, frankly, was a social movement in England that had nothing to do with a lower middle class kid in Boston. But what I connected to was the anger, the passion, the emotion of what they were feeling and how they expressed it. I wasn't good enough to be able to express myself on that platform. I took the elements of what drove to me, and I created my own platform. So while I can't play music and have thousands of people or millions of people download it and buy it, I can create business and opportunities and people that get to live by that ethos. It's about freedom. Your performance in business, it provides you freedom, freedom to do what you want to do with whom you want to do it with. The money, the trappings, those things come and go. They're inanimate objects. They can't love you. They can't be loyal to you. They can't have compassion for you. They can't have anger for you. They don't care. Welcome, I'm your host Dino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, Laura Cesaro talked about her experience as a young founder operating across two countries. Today, we're going in a slightly different direction. Did you know that the Sex Pistols have inspired VCs and tech innovators? That's the link we're exploring today. Our guest, Chris Lynch, is currently CEO at AtScale. Chris is both a VC investor and an operator, and he's a little different from other venture capitalists. In the Boston tech circles, he's sometimes referred to as the punk rock VC, and you will figure out why in our conversation. You will hear how the ethos of punk rock and his knack for sales informed Chris's career. You will hear how he thinks about assessing companies and teams he invests in. And you will also hear a really important conversation that Chris is currently leading in the tech startup community. The need for more transparency in equity compensation. And by the way, if you're considering taking a job at any level in a startup right now, you definitely need to hear Chris's advice on how to assess the equity component of the compensation and the questions that you should be asking yourself and the people who are hiring you. Enjoy the episode. Let's start by introducing you to our listeners. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you're doing now, and then we'll get sort of to the story of how you get where you are now. First of all, Dino, thank you for inviting me. I'm super happy to be here. And uh, my name is Chris Lynch. I'm the executive chairman and CEO of AtScale. AtScale is a universal semantic layer. And For those of you that are not acquainted with the data world, all it means is we create one logical view of all our enterprises' data to create actionable insights. Outside of that, um, I've got a vehicle called Reverb Advisors, basically my latest iteration of venture investing, operator-led. I've started a couple of venture firms, or I was part of one, Atlas Ventures, and then created one with two of my partners called Accomplice. And um, outside of that, I've got a number of investments. They're all in the data space and cybersecurity. And I've had a few sort of labor of loves. One was Bottle Rocket, which is one that was the intersection of, you know, my other passion, which is music. I'm sure we'll talk more about it. But basically, I'm a salesman masquerading as an entrepreneur, a CEO, and a venture capitalist. But I'm a salesman at heart. You're 
selling yourself short. So when I first crossed path with you, you were a venture capitalist, but it was very clear to me that your path to that was very different and your approach to being a venture capitalist is a little different than the traditional approaches. So how did you become an entrepreneur? And then, you know, how did you make the transition into venture capitalists? So Dino, I've been working since I was seven years old. And, and I tell people, I couldn't have had the career that I've had if I wanted to have it. Ironically, because I don't have the discipline, you know, I just don't have that that ambition for money and, and the trappings with that. Not that I'm giving any back, but that was never a primary motivation for me. The things that shaped my business career are that job I had. I had a paper out with 300 customers at seven years old. That's where I learned business and to sell. I'm embarrassed to say I didn't learn as much as I should have in school because I was impatient and I was only interested in what I was interested in, and I'd only focus on things that I was interested in, which primarily my interests were related to teachers I was interested in. So early in my life, I understood that I gravitated and had a connection to people, and I found people interesting. I didn't find a lot else in my life interesting. And then I had a cousin that was studying at BU and living with us to save money, and he did a semester abroad. And I think I was 13 or 14, and he came back with all this music. So this would have been in the late 70s. And he brought back the Buzzcocks and 999 and the Sex Pistols. And, you know, I was like every other teenager. I was, you know, playing sports. I was studying reasonably at gunpoint. And then I heard this music, and it was an assault on my mind. And I can't describe it, but... It was a physic. It wasn't just mental. It was physical. My whole being, like even now talking to you, I have goosebumps. I'm a 60 year old man, just thinking about the music and the emotion it evoked in me. And when I heard that, I stopped going to school. I was like Ferris Bueller on steroids. I, I used every trick that I could figure out how to manipulate not going, but passing. And all I wanted to do was listen to that music and be as irreverent and as disruptive as I could be. And those things put together is sort of how I kind of got here. It had nothing to do with MBAs or reading business books about, you know, how to be successful and not try or try too hard or whatever those, those baloney self-help books. It wasn't that it was punk rock, rock and roll, my paper route, and learning the discipline of not only delivering the service, delivering the paper, but I learned the lesson of seven of collecting the money and the importance of that, the importance of how to interact with people. And I'll give you one anecdotal story that will, will and I think of it often, which will tell you how it impacted me. But one, on my route, I used to have an apartment building and, you know, people are transient. And I'd have people that would stiff me. They'd get the paper for eight weeks and then I'd go knock on the door to collect. And they moved. Some, some other person was answering the door, right? And the way that the paper routes worked, my mom had to buy the papers. We had to pay for them. And then I had to deliver them, and I had to collect the money. If I didn't collect the money, we lost money. It was only until I was a young adult did I understand that, and I used to get like a little stipend for my collection, but I didn't understand that I was supplementing the family's income. And that paper route got passed on to my siblings, with the exception of my sister, who was the youngest. So I learned to work hard at a young age, was 
one of the gifts my parents gave me. The second gift my parents gave me, I grew up poor, but in a home with a lot of love. So I never equated money with happiness. I equated love and people with happiness. So I would tell you that the influences on my business career are punk rock, our work, and love. Yeah, I can definitely attest that when I first met you, I heard people refer to you as the punk rock VC. So how did all this translate into your first experiences as an entrepreneur? So the way it came about, and it's still tied to the, the story of the music, is so I thought I was going to be a bass player in a punk rock band. That was my aspiration. And um, much to my father's chagrin. So me being also sort of a all or nothing person, so I get into something, I'm in 110% completely immersed, or I'm not interested. So, you know, here I am in high school in suburban Boston, and I've got bleach, well, as you can see, I don't have any hair now, but I used to have bleach blonde hair spiked up like Billy Idol, and hoop earrings and leather pants, and that was fine, you know, for hanging out and doing what I was doing. But when I had to get a real job in the mid-80s, you know, not so good. So the only job I could get was selling financial forecasting software on the phone. Because on the phone, I could look like a 42 long in a three-piece suit, even though I was this guy with earrings and bleach blonde hair and all the other baloney. So I learned how to invent myself and invent a persona that was focused on the persona I was selling to. So I didn't know a lot about financial software, didn't know anything about it, but I knew how to sell and I knew how to listen because I love people and I'm fascinated with them. So even though I also like to talk a lot, I like to listen a lot, and uh, which is one of the greatest attributes I think a salesperson can have is listening because your customer has all the answers. You don't have the answers, the customer does. And if you listen, they give you the answers. If you're always talking, then you never hear the answer. You might get lucky, and what you're talking about might be what they want to hear and what they're interested in, or it might not be. But if you listen, they're going to tell you. And I used those sort of basic traits to fake it until I made it. And it sort of took a life on of its own. But what I realized, if I was good at selling, I had the freedom that drove me or made me gravitate to music. It was kind of that same freedom that if you're making your numbers, you have your own business, you have your own band, right? You have your own solo project. And all you have to do is keep selling records. And if you do, you can experiment. All the thing, all the analogs, I know you understand because you're a musician and you have a passion for music. Like I see all those analogs, right? So, you know, the, the, the struggling artist, artist, he does it for the love. But some of those artists end up through the best ones, right? They don't try to be famous or popular. They just do what they do. And there's some connection. That connection is authenticity. The reason that I think I gravitated to that music was because they were saying something that, frankly, was a social movement in England that had nothing to do with a lower middle class kid in Boston. But what I connected to was the anger, the passion, the emotion of what they were feeling and how they expressed it. And somehow, because I probably out of survival, I wasn't good enough to be able to express myself on that platform. I took the elements of what drove to me 
and I made them my own and I created my own platform. So while I can't play music and have thousands of people or millions of people download it and buy it and adore me, I can create business and opportunities and people that get to live by that ethos, which is the way I live. So to me, it's about freedom. Your performance in business, if you really understand what it's about, it provides you freedom, freedom to do what you want to do with whom you want to do it with. The money, the trappings, those things come and go. They're inanimate objects. They can't love you. They can't be loyal to you. They can't have compassion for you. They can't have anger for you. They don't care. I cannot tell you how much I agree with everything you just said. You know, there's a black and white where people believe that you should either find something that you love or, you know, go make a lot of money. And they don't understand that what really matters is the ability to connect those two things so that once you've made the profit, the profit will actually allow you to do what you love. So let's keep on with your story. You were a successful salesperson in a financial services software company and had your first other successful venture. Tell me about what happened and some of the lessons that you learned. All of the projects that, that I've worked on, including the, the one that I'm in now, I can tell you that in the world of startups and enterprises, we know a lot of people don't take the initiative or the chance to start an enterprise because they're afraid to fail. The irony is that all of these projects that I work on and have been successful, every single one from the first one to the current one have failed multiple times before ultimately succeeding. So you need to be prepared, no matter what you do in life, to fail and accept that failure is part of the process. If you think about science or you think about music, it's very rare that a band, a song, a piece of art, a piece of your a body of work just comes out of you a hundred percent what you want it to be out of the first blush. Sometimes that can happen, but it's sort of a perfect storm. In most instances, ideas, art develops. It develops from inside you. It develops outside you. It develops with collaboration of others. And it depends how you look at it. To me, a collaboration, if you and I decide to work on something, we're iterating ideas, which means not every idea I have, we're just going to go do. You're going to have feedback. Say, so Chris, I think that is cool, but like we need to shift it a little bit to the left. Or what about this? Or what? If, and that collaboration was ultimately forms the idea. Negative people could say, well, Chris's first idea was wrong. Right. And then he came up because he worked with Dino with his other idea. It was derivative of that first one. Well, I don't agree with that. I, I believe failure is part of the process of getting to success. And people have to accept that whatever you do in life, failure is part of the process. It's how you deal with failure. And it, it, to me, it comes to two things. I try to surround myself and I try to be somebody who internalizes all challenges and externalizes all successes. So what do I mean by that? I believe the tra trait of a successful entrepreneur, a successful artist, a successful husband, father, friend, brother, sister, comes down to 
how you deal with challenges and failures. Successful people, positive people that have positive relationships and create positive things, internalize challenges, meaning they put it on themselves first, and they externalize positive things, meaning they push that credit to the people around them because they're focused on achievement and success, which means you have to overcome the failure. Celebrating success is fine, but it doesn't make you more successful. Overcoming failure makes you more successful. I'm not talking about necessarily financial success, all that, although as you pointed out astutely, it's the price of admission. What I tell people is that's the tax I pay to do what I love with whom I love, right? Otherwise, it's self-indulgent. So my investors expect and deserve a return. And in return for that return, we get to do what we love with who we love. That's a great deal. But it means that we have to understand how success is formed, and it starts with the people, and then it moves to the collaboration of the people, and it, then it moves to their ability to galvanize themselves around a one, one mission. And the thing about startups, the first thing is you have to figure out what's the one thing that you do better than anyone else on the planet. That's something that one of my mentors, Jit Saxena, taught me many years ago. He's one of the guys in a boardroom. He says one or two things in every meeting, and they're the most important things. And then you have the people that are talking, talking, talking the whole time and saying nothing and just taking up space. But in people who internalize challenges, in my experience, are successful, positive collaborators and successful in life. And people that externalize failure, meaning they play the blame game. Well, you know, we failed because we're in a recession, because we have the wrong leadership in the government. The VC stunk. My founder was an idiot. You know, I got divorced while I was going through the company, whatever, right? In my experience, the more educated and smart you are, the more sophisticated your excuses become. At the end of the day, right, it's a zero-sum game. And I want people that own it. They own all their failures. They own all their challenges. And they externalize their successes. Those are the best people, most effective people that I encounter. And the most important attribute beyond character and integrity is work ethic. And even when I'm a father of five, the most important lesson I try to teach all my kids is how to work hard. I can't teach them the other things. They're going to learn them on their own. They're going to ignore me. They're going to want to be different. My only mission as, as a father is for them to be kind, caring people of character and integrity that know how to work hard because I know at 60 and you know at 58 that life is hard work. You want to be married for any length of time? Hard work. You, you want to have a relationship with your relatives? Hard work. You want to have a relationship with your co-founder? Hard work, right? You want to make music with your band? Hard work. So you tell me what is valuable and important in life that doesn't include hard work, and I'll tell you it's not that valuable. We talked a lot about success. Um, how has the definition of success changed for you over the years? I actually think the definition hasn't changed for me which means that my definition is pure, at least for me. My definition of success 
is freedom. Like my definition is exactly what I'm doing. I'm talking to somebody that I like and respect about things that I think are important to share with others. So my definition of success was always freedom, independence, doing stuff outside the box and doing it better than anyone else on the planet that earns you the right to do it your way. And I believe that I'm not perfect and I probably could have by other people's standards, even a bigger career and platform from a business perspective. If I had that blind ambition, ironically, I don't look at how many zeros I have in my bank account and I don't measure myself that way. I measure my success by my family, by my friends who are all associates, right? Truth be told, you're a friend, but we're involved in a bit a business endeavor. I'm on your podcast. At the end of the day, my aspiration is because my work and my play are the same. All the people I work with are my friends. And to your point, if you're able to be successful and sustain that in a predictable way, then people are very happy to write you the check and they're happy with, with the performance of me and the teams that we build and the companies that we build, but they don't want me marrying their daughter and they don't want me moving in as their next door neighbor. And I accept that and that's okay. And I don't want to marry their daughter and I don't want to be their next door neighbor because yes, I'm going to play the music too fucking loud. You can be my neighbor whenever you want. You have had dual roles in your career because you're an investor, but you're also an operator and you've shifted between those two roles back and forth throughout your career which has given you sort of a unique perspective on the role of the VC. When you think of yourself as being a good venture capitalist, what are the traits that you see in that? One of the reasons that I go back and forth and, you know, frankly, keep a foot in both worlds is that, you know, I was the victim of some venture capitalists. Some were great mentors and developed me and are, you know, in part the reason I'm here. And I think it's important that you have to walk a mile in someone else's shoes to really have empathy. You can have sympathy for their plight externally, but you can't have empathy unless you walked a mile in their shoes. The analog I'll give you is, so you know Junior, and you know I would love to see him follow his passion in music, and he, and he works hard with, with Mike Levesque, but he's at a point where I want him to understand the whole picture of what it is to be a musician, a struggling musician. So he now is going in and, you know, he'll, he'll play a few tunes, but what he's now tasked to doing now that he's got his license, he's going to be Mike's drum tech. So he's going to go bring the drums in, set them up, do the sound checks at the, the, the crappy little bars. He's going to go at the end and watch Mike get paid his 40 bucks and watch Mike count it in front of the guy because there's probably 32 bucks in there. And he's going to understand what it is to be a musician, right? Not a guy that has a fantasy about it. And being a musician isn't just about the hour on stage, right? That's the fun part. It's all the work to get there the unfun stuff, the practice, the practice on your own, 
practice with the band is fun. Setting up three hours before and then sitting in, you know, a green room that looks like probably smaller than most of the bathrooms in your home, right? That's not so fun, right? Eating greasy cheeseburgers as your pay isn't so fun. Having people on their on their phone when you're trying to share your art with them isn't fun. But it's part of that process. It's part of the artist. And if you're truly an artist, ultimately you represent that on the stage, all of those things that bring you to that moment. And then that's real. That's authentic. And people gravitate to that. If you get up there and you go through all that and none of that's expressed, that would be Taylor Swift. As you're thinking this within the context of what makes a good VC, empathy, really important quality. What are some of the other qualities that you look for or that would make a great VC in your mind? For the most part, you have a lot of financial engineers that all go to the same graduate schools, study the same things, and startups, early stage companies are about disruption. So I think that in part, you need to have financial discipline. But you also have to be an outside-the-box thinker. And I find that a lot of venture capitalists who are very performant are very compliant. And therefore, the things they look for are very derivative. So I think one of the traits for a good venture capitalist is to be open. And I think that they follow too much pattern matching, which again is sort of like, okay, if you think about school and one of the reasons... I get bored with it, frankly. There's a lot of memorization. Now, if you want to test me while we're on the podcast, ask me lyrics of any song and, and we like a lot of the same stuff. Don't ask me about the lyrics to Watermelon Sugar High, but ask me the lyrics to Pretty Vacant and I can tell you, right? So I can memorize stuff if I care about it, if it means something to me. But to memorize stuff that I don't care about just so I can regurgitate it back to somebody and get an A so I can like, you know, do what they want me to do. That's not for me. So I think the best VCs have a little bit of that edge. They're conceptual thinkers. They're outside the box. You know, why did a guy like Paul Ferry take a chance with me? He's like the godfather of venture, the founder of Matrix. And I remember distinctly, and this is many, many years ago, when I interviewed with him for my first startup that you asked me about, And I interviewed with the other investors. I won't name them because it was negative, but it's sort of a traditional VC. Why should we hire you? You don't have a good pedigree. We can hire anybody for this job. And me being me said, hey, you called me. And then, and he's like, oh, so you're a wise ass. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm not getting this job. And this was in VC Mountain, Waltham. And I literally went right next door. And then I met Paul Ferry. And he asked me about where I grew up, where my parents grew up, my birth order, my siblings, what they were. Never asked me a business question. Didn't ask me about my resume, what I'd done before. Why? Because he knew all that. That's why I had the meeting. But I'm thinking, you know, where is this going? Total opposite of the other meeting. And I'm already sort of written it off that, you know, I had the meeting, so I took it. But like, I alienated the other guy. I'm not getting the job. So I have the meeting, totally different very conversational. He said, I've got one last question for you. I said, okay, are you lucky? And I'm thinking, okay, 
this is a trick question. What is he really asking me? So I give him sort of the standard, like, yeah, I'm lucky. I have a lovely, healthy family. I make a good living. Yeah, I consider myself lucky. And he said, good, because I only hire lucky people. And I'm just thinking, okay, I had this terrible interview, and then I had this non-interview. So I'm not getting this job. And by the way, the job was ArrowPoint, which ultimately went on to be, you know, top five IPO. And we took it public and sold it to Cisco for $6 billion. I got that job because of the meeting I had with Paul Ferry. And he never asked me about, you know, did I know Medic? What was my sales philosophy? How did I do these numbers? He learned about me. The best VCs understand you bet on markets. And you bet on jockeys, and the jockeys will whip any horse into shape. And that's what I learned from Paul Ferry. And the reason that I do venture in the operating stuff, because he taught me I could and that I should. And part of what, I, what I'm trying to do, part of my agenda for being on this podcast is what I hope people see in me. I don't do everything right. I try to be transparent about what I do right and what I do wrong because I want people to be better than me because that's progress, including my family, my friends, the people I mentor. And I also want them to recognize what got me successful, which is just being yourself in a world where everybody pretends, everybody thinks they have to be something to get something. I'm here to tell you, just be your fucking self. It'll be good enough. And for those who don't think it's good enough, fuck them. Yeah, I can definitely attest that from the first time I met you, I knew exactly who you were and what you stood for. And um, speaking about being vocal about what you stand for, I want to touch on something that's a very important conversation that you've been leading recently, which is a conversation around tech startups, governance, transparency, compensation that you have been leading on LinkedIn and you're trying to lead in the industry. So... Why don't you give me the cliff notes and then people can go on LinkedIn and read more and then hopefully join you in driving this conversation and hopefully making some change. Th thank you for asking about that, Dino, because it's super important to me. You know, as I'm on the back nine of my career and, you know, seeing, you know, probably at least four, if not five down, significant down markets, what I learned through my years in venture, both as a venture capitalist, as an operator, as an employee of venture companies, one of the things that's come to fruition in this last correction is that, and frankly, I didn't really recognize this until, you know, the last 12 months, I would say, the last nine. Equity compensation for startup-backed companies, privately held companies, is a significant, possibly the most significant form of compensation for employees. As such, we need to have a greater transparency of what that equity is and what it means to those employees. Meaning, the punchline, to keep it simple, I'm pushing for reforms in the private equity markets with there's a level of transparency and accountability on employees' private equity that mirrors the kind of transparency, not that it's super transparent, but it's more transparent, the public markets. So I want private equity for employees to have at least some of the important transparency measures that public stocks have, because for those employees, they view it 
as essential compensation and then deferring or replacing that private equity compensation with hard currency. So it's only fair. And to have employees that, you know, you could argue educationally are very sophisticated. I can tell you, I talk to PhDs in computer science and mathematics every day that don't understand what preferred shareholder preferences mean, meaning they get paid first. What does a 2x preference mean, a 1x preference? You know, what are the tax implications of ISOs and RSUs? They don't, they don't understand these things. And I think there should be an obligation for private companies to educate their employees when they join and on a regular basis on what the value is of their stock, how they should think about it, because it's a part of their compensation. And I think that today it's looked at and assume that people understand it's almost like a laissez-faire, may the buyer beware. And they only learn at the end of the journey, right, what they should have known at the beginning. And I don't think that's fair. And I am going to keep talking and hopefully people read and ask the questions. I don't have all the answers, but what I know is as a community, we do, but we have to talk about it and we have to figure it out. And by the way, VCs are part of the solution, employees are part of the solution, and the management and founders of these companies are part of the solution. And there is a solution, right? It's called transparency. We should, it's common sense, right? If, if you're going to come work for me, right, you want to understand the currency. If I tell you, hey, I'm going to pay you 10000 for you to come and do a podcast for me monthly, you should ask the question, is that $10,000, 10,000 pesos, 10,000 shares? I think it's only fair for you to know that so that when you say yes, if you, if you take the 10,000 shares and the shares end up being a dollar and you understand that's the risk, but it could also be worth $10 million. You know what? Free country, capitalism, that's, you know, that's why we're here. But you should join understanding, knowing that it could be $10 million or, could, or you could wallpaper the room that you're in with it. You know, I think obviously important for C-level and, and slightly below C-level employees, but I think that over the course of the past 20, 30 years, we, you know, there's been such a push in popular culture with the myth of the startup and, you know, being an early employee with shares and you become super wealthy that uh, this applies to a lot of people, as you've pointed out, even at much lower levels in the company. So lacking at this stage, the level of transparency and governance that you're talking about, for anybody who is thinking about joining a startup or a privately owned venture that includes some form of equity compensation, what are the most important questions that they should ask to the company, the management, the investors? If they're taking equity, they should ask for and get, even if they have to sign an NDA, they should get a copy of the shareholder agreement. They should get a copy of the incorporation. They should ask the following questions. How many shares outstanding? What's the strike price? Are there any preferences, investor preferences on the deal? Meaning, is there a commitment for proceeds that already exists? A preference would be is, and by the way, I'm not saying preferences are wrong. They protect 
investments and make things that maybe aren't investable investable. That said, it should be clear. So if you ask me that question, I should be transparent and say, well, well, Dino, the company is currently valued. What's the current 499 valuation would be another question. The current valuation is $10 million for the sake of argument. And how many rounds of funding? How much money? Well, we've raised $5 million. Okay. Um, at what valuation? Are there any preferences on it? Yeah, there's a 2x preference, which means the first $10 million in proceeds if the comp- when the company, whether it's an IPO, sale, whatever it is, that goes back to the investors. That would be bef- before any of the employees make any money on that. Correct. So in that scenario, right, if there was a 2x preference on a company that was worth $10 million, then guess what? The employees' common shares are worth zero in that scenario. So you want to know how many shares outstanding, what percentage of the shares that they're providing you, what percentage of the total outstanding shares are out? How many shares are unallocated? What does the option pool look like? Meaning, am I going to take this and I own 10% of the company, and then you're going to have to increase the option pool to hire the next three people, which means I'm already being diluted. How much cash and what's the burn rate? Me, the real question is, so when are you going to raise money again? And then the obligation of the employees to think through, do I believe in the time frame they have and the cash? And what we're going to do is the company at the end of that cash going to be significantly more valuable than what it is today or not, which is going to determine at the next phase of, of the company's growth how much it's going to be worth. So they have to, they, they can't just blindly just accept the equity. They need to negotiate and understand the equity the same way they would the cash. Because it's because it's a big piece of the compensation. And if if they're not prepared to do that, then they should go work at a bank or work someplace where, you know, the equity is sort of like, hey, maybe we'll get a vacation to Florida, you know, or maybe we'll we'll do something, you know, nominal, interesting, but fun versus life changing. If you're joining a startup for life changing equity, which is why primarily people from a financial standpoint join, then you better understand that equity. You better understand the stock agreement, what can happen in different scenarios, the incorporation agreement, what's the value currently of the stock, what is the 409A, how many shares are you really getting, what class of stock are you getting, what are the tax implications of that class of stock. All these things you should either hire a professional to explain to you or find a friend who knows it. You should get an explanation from the CFO of said startup, but it's kind of like, you know what, if I needed life, life-threatening life surgery, you're my friend, I tell you, hey, I got this diagnosis, I know as my friend and a smart man, first thing you're going to tell me is the, is the next piece of advice I'm giving all your listeners. Get a second opinion. Listen to the CFO of said company and then get a second opinion because it's as important as, right, that first diagnosis, get a second diagnosis. That is absolutely true. And hopefully people are taking good notes of this and thinking about it as they're considering opportunities. Okay. So if people want to find out about you and what you're doing right now, where should they go? 
They can obviously go to LinkedIn. That's the primary vehicle I use to communicate business ideas. So they can go to my LinkedIn, which I believe is is um, Christopher Lynch. They can go to atscale.com and there's a bio there and they can see some of the things. And if they want to see some of my entrepreneurial endeavors and some of the entrepreneurs I work with to get a sense for what we talked about from a personal trait character perspective, they could go to reverbadvisors.com and they'll see a number of the angel investments I make and what we're doing. And then last but not least, I'd be remiss not, not to say, go check out Tech Tackles Cancer and be on the lookout for Tech Tackles X, which is going to be the next generation of, of Tech Tackles Cancer. That'll continue in perpetuity. But we've been inspired by the outreach of entrepreneurs and people like yourself that have supported it. And we're launching Tech Tackles X in January, which means we're going to crowdsource the next big problem that as a community, we're going to go attack. And once we identify it, then we're going to galvanize that community and come up with interesting ways to raise awareness, money, and solve those problems. I'm glad you brought this up because normally at this stage, I ask people about a passion outside of work. In your case, I was going to ask you exactly about Tech Tackle Cancer and the Tech Tackle events, which for those who are not familiar with them, are events that you organize that bring together your passion of music uh, in the form of concerts and some of the members of the tech community singing with charity. So why don't we talk about Tech Tackle Cancer and some of the related activities? Pediatric cancer is different than adult cancer. But unfortunately, the drug companies are not investing at the same rate because frankly, it's not, it's not as big a market. So the research that is helping these children really is born of the U.S. government and independent agencies. So it's important to raise money for independent research and drug discovery so that we can solve pediatric cancer at a faster rate than we will if, we, if we're dependent exclusively on traditional drug companies. So first and foremost, it's about curing pediatric cancer and raising awareness of it so we can raise the funds and get the smart people applying their brains to it. The second reason for Tech Tackles Cancer is to build the muscle memory for entrepreneurs around part of this whole journey is about understanding that you're part of an ecosystem and you're a small infinitesimal piece of it. It's hard to, to remember that sometimes when all of a sudden your company's successful and you feel like you're a master of the universe. And you know we see a lot of people act out and it bring out the worst in people. My goal is for it to bring out the best in people, learning how to be successful in business, learning how that enables the freedom of transitioning from work to passion, to coworkers, to friends, to being a participant and contributor to the world versus just a consumer of it and things. So building that muscle memory, not that it has to be pediatric cancer, but I'm hoping to inspire entrepreneurs to say, what's my passion cause? What, what are the problems do I see in the world that affect me in a way that I want to take a stand and get like-minded people to take that stand with me. And then lastly, for them to understand that the power to go do that is in building a community. So my, my goal with Tech Tackles Cancer for the last 10 years 
beyond the fact that we've raised several million dollars for pediatric cancer, is to establish those other two things, which we've established. We had a two-year delay with COVID, but we're back, as you saw, in June. And in January, we're going to announce Tech Tackles X, which is the same concept, but we'll crowdfund in that community. What problem do we want to solve? I know some of the things you're passionate about. So, for instance, freedom of press. It's a huge problem today, right? We live in a world of fake news. And we are part of the, we've created the platform to perpetrate fake news as technologists. That might be an interesting one to talk about to the community to say, hey, you know what? Between your brains, we created this. We can get the regulations. We can get more technology involved to even the playing field, to get back in journalistic integrity, freedom of press, freedom of speech, unadulterated, unmolested, uncompromised. And if, if we get enough people, if you do, and the community says, yep, this is the next one, then we'll create a theme around that. Obviously, if I have my way about it, and I think you, it'll, be, it'll, it'll leverage some music form, but it doesn't have to be, right? It'll be thematic, but we'll create something that's fun, that brings people together, but also raises awareness and a discussion around the cause. And we come up as a community with what we believe, which will not be perfect, we believe the answer. And I can tell you that startups, anything important to do that you care about, perfection is the enemy of progress in startups and in any endeavor, right? You have your own thing that you do. It's not perfect, but you just get up and do it. And that's why it's effective. And that's why you've been able to do it on a regular basis. If you wait to be perfect, Guess what? What did Joe Stromer say? If you've been trying for years, we already heard your song, Death or Glory. And here's something for your your podcasters. If you're interested in what we're talking about, do a little bit of homework. If you want to meet me for coffee and tell me about your idea, I'm totally open. I'm not going to give you the answer to this question, but you reach out to gene.oneal at atscale.com if you want to meet me. And it starts with the subject line, you answer this question. On London Calling, it's a double album. Inside, the empty side, I don't know what you call that. When the record ends, there's a message on all four sides of that record. You tell me what it is, and you can't Google it. you got to look at the record, and I'll ask the question. I'll Zoom you, and I'll take both my eyes. I'll look in one. I can see your heart and soul. I'll know if you're lying to me. Then I won't meet you. But if you got the answer, I'll meet you. Now, if everyone gets the answer, it may take a little time. Be patient. but You think about that, it's so true. You've been trying for years, we already heard your song. You want to change the world? Change it today. Start today. Do something. And if it's wrong, dust yourself up, get up, and take two more short, choppy steps forward. That's how we make shit happen in this world. (laughs) That's great. So next question, every business era has cliché jargon expressions that at some point become empty, which is the one that drives you crazy? Almost every $10 word that a VC uses, the less experienced and the more fresh out of uh, business school they are, the more buzzwords you hear. You know, but let's see. Usually it's, well, what's the pain point you're solving for? Now it's like product-led growth. 
high velocity model. Well, what does that mean? And when you ask them what it means, they really don't know. They heard about it down there in Cambridge. At the end of the day, companies are bought, they're not sold. That's a fact. And the value of those companies is determined by the size of the addressable market of the problem you go solve. That's the reality. In our minds, we need to believe that we created that outcome. I haven't created any outcomes. I've had good fortune to be at the right place at the right time. With the right people. With the right people. And like a shark, I just keep moving my tail, right, until I smell blood. If you stop moving your tail, you sink. So you got to keep pushing, you got to keep trying, you got to keep failing, getting up and keep going. If you believe in jargons, they're all empty. The truth is inside you. It's not inside a book. I tell people, you don't need HBS if you work with me, because you work with me, you're going to get the real HBS, which is heart, balls and soul. And that's what makes companies. That's what makes success in life. Not Harvard Business School. <laughs> Sorry, Dino. And by the way, I, I love you and respect you, not because you went to Harvard Business School. In spite of that, well, they, they weren't able to program you. So that's good. I'm not saying you can't get anything out of it, but it needs to enhance your brain. It shouldn't regiment it. One of the things I love about you is that you're the least Harvard Business School guy I know. And I say that as a compliment. You've got all the intellect and the education, but you're also real. You're authentic, right? You're not perfect. You don't pretend to be. It's powerful. You didn't ask this, but I'm going to ask an answer for myself. Authenticity. People put up with me and my personality, my baloney, because even when they don't like, you know, I've got somebody that I respect a lot that's, you know, Harvard, Stanford, very well-educated, very buttoned-down person. What he says about me, he said, I love you. People have a reaction to you. Some, some of it's positive, some of it's negative. And um, when somebody says something negative, like, oh, he's crazy or he's this or he's that, and he's, you know, swears all the time, he takes his shirt off and he, you know, blah, blah, blah. He said, you need to know, Chris, there's nobody more loving, caring, trusting than Chris. Um, yes, he's an emotional guy, but you know what? He's authentic, he's real, and yes, now, this is his Stanford Harvard way. He says, and he's coarse. So his, his $10 Harvard word is I'm coarse, which means I can be an asshole because I just say it how I believe it. But people accept that from me, not all people, but many, because I'm r- real. And by the way, that's what people want. They want to connect to something real. They don't have to, we don't have to all agree on everything. It's like all the political unrest in the world. The problem is we don't focus on what we agree on as the foundation to build the trust to figure out the stuff we don't agree on because people aren't real. They're hiding who they are, what they believe. The bottom line is I believe most people are good and they want to do good. And you start there. And yes, you'll get disappointed sometimes. It's just a tax. And I'm willing to pay the tax of the people that betray me, that are disloyal, that are disingenuous. It's, it's just a tax, right? We've got good fortune. I do, you do, where we live, what we're able to do, how we provide a life for our families. And guess what? We pay taxes. I'm happy to pay taxes because it gives me a platform to get to do what I love with people I love and make a great living doing it. So what could I potentially have an issue with? 
right? We should start there. And then let's go figure out these problems. But instead, it's you're this. No, you're that. And it's all this other baloney. And the problem is when everyone does all the finger pointing, the real charlatans get to perpetuate their bullshit. As long as we're all fighting against each other, guess what? The assholes are still in control. They used to use the TV and Budweiser, and now they use Facebook or Meta or whatever they call it. So now you got me thinking, we need to prop up one of those ideas that we need to put out for everyone to think about is freedom of the press and how we create a true independent platform. Because obviously with Twitter getting bought, all we've done is transfer, right, one leg to another, but it's going to be the same old story. One person, one set of ideas, pardon the pun, trumping everyone else's. And nobody's idea is better than or worse than anybody else's. Yeah. So final question, I call it food for the body or food for the soul. You can choose either a dish or a drink that you love or book, piece of music, movie, a piece of art, play, something that moves you. And if you want, you can do both. Okay. A dirty, dry Tito's martini. It would be veal, alsombuca, and um, it's got to be the Sex Pistols. They did with one record what, I don't know, it took the Beatles, what, a dozen. That's what I always say, right? They didn't have to make multiple records, right? And, and you know what? One of the things that I love about them, who would do that? You think about in the commercial world, that's authenticity. And they're not perfect people. And, you know, I get hate from people. Well, Sid Vicious killed his girlfriend. Well, he wasn't convicted in a court of law, so we don't know for sure, right? But if he did, that's bad for sure. But what the Sex Pistols represented, and by the way, it was Steve Jones and Matlock on that record, not Sid Vicious, but in any event. It was just Steve Jones, actually. Yes. Well, the point is, right? Forget about the bad stuff. The point is self-rule, independence, your own accountability. The message they sent, they sent in one record, in one way. And in my mind, it changed the world. And I could tell you that it inspires me to this day in what I do. And I know what I do impacts others. So they impacted how many millions of people, right? Isn't that what we all aspire to do is have a positive impact on those we love. And then, by the way, if in turn we can have a positive impact on everybody and ultimately love them that way, isn't that like what it's all about? And I guarantee you, no one connects the Sex Pistols with love and caring, but it absolutely is all about that. But you got to listen. I think this is like the perfect place to stop. Chris, thanks so much for doing this. Hope everybody goes and listen to Nevermind the Bollocks, Here Comes the Sex Pistols and finds the love in it. Awesome. Thank you, Dino, for inviting me. This, this was a real labor of love. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Good Pods or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a stellar rating or review. Remember to stay tuned because at the end of the credits, I will play a song by Honest Mechanic, the duo featuring Susan Cattaneo. For more information and links for Chris and all his ventures, go to the podcast website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. 
You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Salvarino on guitar and Jesse Willems on bass. And now, enjoy Outsider by Honest Mechanic. I need to know So many reasons why they need to go I see their faces It's a club I can't get into I take it home and try to crack the code Everybody thinks of themselves Everybody thinks of as an outsider Wake up early trudging in the snow Uphill both ways, man, you don't even know Some people go out dancing Some people have to go to work As an outsider Everybody thinks of themselves As an outsider But now you're old With pretty faces Trapped in glowing phones Check me out, I'm the one you need to know My art's important, just nobody knows To smoke the weed Everybody thinks of themselves Everybody thinks of themselves As an outsider Everybody thinks of themselves As an outsider So